Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, it's episode 154. Uh, today is February 20th, 2020, and this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined across the internet by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. What's up, everybody? Happy you're across the internet. Hey, happy across the internet. We have some fun news stories this week, uh, and we'll be actually talking a little bit about a community question posed on the HFES member forum. <gasps> a little a little change of pace here. Um, so this week we have, uh, it's all about wearables and robotics and surgery. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool week. We got the bracelet of silence. We have, uh, I know, it's, it's, <laughs> I see Blake over there laughing. It's um, the bracelet of silence. We have uh, wearable tech that tells drowsy truckers it's time to pull over. A robot that can perform super microsurgery passes the first test in humans, and a blood-drawing robot is supposedly more accurate than humans. So it's all about wearables. It's all about those robots in medical tech this week. That's pretty awesome, man. But first, hey, there's some programming notes. Uh, starting, I guess, like in a week here, week and a half, I guess. Yeah, what are we, we're like looking at a week and a half. We're doing a Patreon refresh. Uh, so look forward to that. We have some content coming. I guess we can go ahead and announce it now. Uh, we're going to have a, a heavily produced uh, show. So instead of the um, the the after show that we always kind of did, uh, where it was just Blake and I kind of bantering back and forth about human factors and et cetera, it's actually uh, it, it's going to be a heavily produced show that we're that we're looking at to kind of bring you bite sized pieces of information that you can take with you. Um, and you know, it's not it's not like. We felt like this was a good addition because it kind of gets at that, like, uh, it's not very demanding of you. You know, you can pick it up anytime and just blow through, like, five of them in five minutes. Because well, we're also, like, good human factors practitioners, right, Nick? And we try and listen to feedback we get from we users, do. right? So, I mean, because yeah. th- we heard, like, they liked shorter content bits, maybe not so much bantering back and forth. So, we'll try this out and see how everybody likes it. If you're a yeah. Patreon subscriber, we're definitely stoked to hear your feedback on it as we drop them. And like like Nick said, we'll talk probably talk more as we as we actually release them. But we've got like different flavors that are going to be these bite sized content pieces. So it'll be cool to see how everybody reacts to them. Yeah, it'll be fun. So we're going to try to time. We we have a year's worth of content produced up front, ready for you, um, and it's all ready to go. So there will be zero hiccups in the next year of time. Uh, and it will be all ready for you to go. It, you'll get a new daily dose weekly. Um, and I guess that's really all we can say. Oh, oh yeah, we are going to try to time these so that way it is uh, topical with things that are going on in the world. So, you know, if there's like a healthcare human factors segment, you might see that drop in sometime in March or April. Um, you know, a little bit more closer to the, uh, the actual events that those are covering. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, let's see here. We have the... Uh, CSU Long Beach, that uh, there they hold a human factors conference every year. Um, uh, keynote speaker this year is myself, and uh, it's going to be a good time. I'm going to be talking about how human factors uh, can be made accessible. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And when is that, Nick? Is that sometime in March? That is March 21st, I believe. 
Excellent. So, so if you're in the California area, especially if you're in like, you know, the LA area, please come out and support Nicholas Rome. Well, not only me, but the, the, the local stuff too. Like the, the chapter at CSU Long Beach. I know there's a lot of uh, really dedicated grad students there uh, and faculty members as well. It's a great opportunity to connect with the community and, um, you know, kind of kind of see what other people are doing in, in a different neck of the woods. Absolutely. It's my alma mater, so there's a lot of great people there for sure. Lots of cool research going on. And actually you get to see, you know, good old Gabby Hancock again too. Yeah. So I've got a piece of programming notes for Nick this week. So HFES has actually come through and nominated Nick Rome as Volunteer of the Month. Maybe you've seen this in your newsletter <laughs> if you get that. Uh, but that's a pretty sick honor to have, I'm sure. I mean, because... That's it's not just every day that you get nominated to be volunteer of the month by the biggest organization in human factors. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, it's an honor. Uh, I want to thank my mom and dad for. Uh, no, it's cool. Uh, so when they asked me to do this, I, I thought it was a great opportunity to uh, sort of basically put the podcast out there and 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 make it so that other people know about this uh, kind of community outreach that we're doing because we want to make sure um, you know everyone kind of has an opportunity to engage with the community uh so anyway i just thought that was a good opportunity to put that out there and um yeah so it's fun thank you blake absolutely man <laughs> no problemo uh well before we get into the news stories this week i gotta know what's going on in blake's world Dude, there's not a whole lot going on in Blake's world. There's a lot of, you know, just catching up on work, getting prepared for some user events coming up. Um, but other than that, just loving life, hanging out with the dog. Alicia's uh, came back from a really big work trip, so we've been just enjoying hanging out. Um, but so for me, not a whole bunch to, you know, jabber or jib about. Uh, I'm excited to hear what you've been up to because I feel like it's been a while since I've seen you. Yeah, it's been two weeks. Uh, life got in the way last week, so sorry about that, folks. Um, maybe I'll, I'll uh, reveal a little bit more later. But uh, for now, uh, I do have to say, I uh, so I've revamped my side of the podcasting setup. So we are no longer in the same studio. We are recording this across the internet. Um, and in my setup, now I have four monitors, I guess. <laughs> So many monitors. You got to post like a picture of that in Slack or something. I will. I'll post a picture of it in Slack. But here's the thing, man. So I was operating off of uh, off some bad information where um, basically I thought what I was getting was these 27 inch Dell monitors. Um, that was not. That's not the case. I was not getting 27 inch Dell monitors. I <laughs> actually got 21 and a half inch Dell monitors. And uh, why this is important is because I was looking at the specifications very carefully. I was looking at how tall these 27-inch monitors were, um, you know, not screen included, but like actual, right? And so that informed my decision of a third monitor that I purchased uh, as a curved display in the middle. Now, I was under the assumption that these uh, these screens were like, 14 inches tall and the one in the middle was 16 inches tall so it'd only be an inch on either side of either monitor right y maybe yeah uh, so i was deciding whether to go with the 32 inch monitor or the 27 inch monitor because i was like ah the 27 will be too short and so i'll have two bigger monitors on the side and the 32 will be tall so i'll have one bigger one in the middle and that's okay i can i can live with that and then the two other ones will pair up right next to it uh, turns out these are 22-inch monitors, 
and uh, now I have like half a screen hanging off the bottom of this thing. But I actually kind of like it in a way. Uh, my working uh, my working area is all eye level with me. You know, and the only place I really look down is kind of in front of me where my working space is. So I guess the moral of the story is like it was kind of a happy accident that I bought this large monitor. Um, it, it's almost like a TV screen from the uh, from the like early 2000s, you know, a 32 inch TV screen. Uh, oh, yeah. It's, it's really nice. Um, and I put all the links to everything I mentioned down below. I actually got these swivel arms for everything, too. And here's another kind of point of, oh, crap, double check your stuff before you order it. <laughs> because I bought I bought three swivel arms, two for the sides and one for the center. And here's the thing. The, the side monitors hold very well with these swivel arms. Um, but the grating on these sil- uh, swivel arms are only good enough for uh, up to... 30 inch monitors oh no i have a a 32 inch (laughs) now luckily because it is light enough in its profile it is not going to uh it actually can hold it although it kind of droops so it's kind of like barely hovering above my desk at this point um but you know (laughs) measure twice purchase once purchase once uh you know don't jump the gun on your arms make sure you do your research um, and again, I was operating off of assumptions before everything got here because I was just so excited. Um, so yeah, anyway, there's that. Hilarious, man. <laughs> so be able to like send it all back or whatever, just get replacements, or are you just going to keep what you got? I'm going to keep what I got because that monitor, like I said, the monitor in the middle is good enough. Um, I really like it. Uh, it's kind of like two monitors in one. I thought it was an ultra-wide, but it's actually just a regular aspect ratio, which actually makes it taller than I thought it was going to be two. Um so anyway, it's uh, I'm I'm gonna keep it. the the mo- the little um, the monitor arm it, it works well enough. So I'm I'm not gonna mess with it, and it it makes it so that way it's low enough profile on my desk. You know, I don't have this big ugly stand. Uh, it's just a, a swivel arm hidden behind it. So I, I kind of like that. Uh, so I'm gonna stick with that. Nice man. Well, you can't really go wrong with something that you like, and it looks pretty sick from the picture you showed me. So it yeah. looks really, really functional from the way you're describing it. So it should be a fun time. Yeah, it's it's fun because I have so I have the three monitors. I'm gonna describe my setup here, and I, I will post a picture in our Slack. Um, but I have the three monitors in front of me. I have my Echo Show kind of off to the right with like, hey, what's going on with my calendar? What's the weather like? All that stuff. And then I have a TV up top that's hooked into like my Nintendo Switch. And, uh, you know, my Chromecast and everything so I can, like, stream TV shows and play games up there while I'm doing productive work on the podcast and stuff down here. <laughs> there you go, man. That's the way to fly. He's going to yeah, be able so to play that. Like, what was the, I can't remember the name of that game with the ring, the fit game that you were playing Oh, Ring while. Fit. There yeah. you go. He's going to be ring fitting during the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So, so if you hear me out of breath, that's why. Now we know. Uh, okay. Well, I think it's time, just about time, we get into that segment of the show. That's right, it's Human Factors News. This is where we search all over the internet to bring you stories that the field of Human Factors is talking about. This could be anything from medical. Uh, We got robotics in there this week. 
Uh, we got some wearables. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it's fair game for us to sit here and blabber on about for uh, just about an hour. Uh, Blake, what do we have up first this week? All right, first this week, looks like when microphones and cameras lurk everywhere, you may want to slip on some privacy armor. Yeah, that's for sure. Researchers from University of Chicago ha- have designed a piece of digital armor, a silence, a bracelet of silence that will jam the echo or any other microphone in the vicinity from listening in on the wearer's conversations. Oh, this is awesome. The bracelet is like an anti-smartwatch, both in its cyberpunk aesthetic and in its purpose of defeating technology. A large, somewhat ungainingly white cuff with spiky transducers. The the bracelet has 24 speakers that emit ultrasonic signals when the wearer turns it on. The sound is imperceptible to most ears, with the possible exception of young people and dogs <laughs> but nearly nearby microphones will detect the, the high frequency sound instead of other noises and at this point the bracelet is just a prototype the researchers say that it, they could manufacture it for as little as twenty dollars and it could and that a handful of investors have asked them about commercializing it man in the world we live in nick and in the with the concept of smart cities and all that kind of good stuff running around, I say this could be a valuable tool to be wearing amongst all your other wearables. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a reason they say cyberpunk, right? Like, I think this could go very well with that face mask that, uh, or the face paint that uh, confuses facial recognition software. Yeah, You know, it's like you're wearing that with this, so that way, you know, no one can basically watch you or listen to you or do anything. Um, this is interesting how it works. Uh, I, I'm finding that... Um, Oh, they weren't the, kidding with about like the transducers hanging off this thing. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's literally a bunch of speakers hanging off this thing, uh, emitting a high pitched noise that masks um, your uh, speech. And now I, I'm sure that the uh, the tech companies, of course, are are already looking at this and going, "Oh, okay, well we'll just filter out that noise." Um, you know, oh no, they, Nick, uh, you've told them. And you've oh, got no. an echo in your house, and it knows. <laughs> oh no, my my bad. Um, but I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if this was almost a uh, uh, like they knew about this and they kept it as a way for privacy, right? Like, if you want to say something in confidence, then you just turn on your little wrist emitting uh, transducer, and you can say something, right? And like, I don't know, it's it's weird about always listening devices and all that stuff. But I mean, um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think this is this is interesting for a couple reasons. One, it's a wearable. Two, it has to deal with the whole privacy security thing, uh, and so it's kind of the like perfect mix between them. Um, I don't know if I'd wear this personally if they made it a little bit more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, form fa- if the form factor was. Uh, if the profile was not as big and ugly, maybe? yeah, it's it's looking pretty gnarly right now. Um, but I mean, it has to it has to have all these speakers to be able to mask actual speech, right? I, at least what I'm thinking. Um, so I I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of one of those for now. I think because it it is like a research project still. So I feel like if they did go with, want to go commercial with it, you would end up seeing kind of different designs to it and stuff like that. Cause right now it really is filling out that kind of like cyber th- cyberpunk or cosplay aesthetic. Uh, but it's an awesome idea, especially in the world that we're living in or in the case of times where 
you know, I mean, Nick, you and I have kind of worked in the more secure world of human factors, right? Where it's, where information is, you know, very much protected and guarded and things like that. And in, you know, in secure environments and stuff like that, something like this, kind of like a, how a white noise machine is used or something of that regard could, could really stop information from leaking of different places. I, I almost, so of course I'm going to go in the back of my mind to the nefarious route, right? Because if you think about that, this kind of cunt or this kind of tool is available to, you know, just anyone. And it's only 20, 20 bucks from like a commercial standpoint. I could see you being able to recreate it. If you really, you know, thought about how this is working. Cause it's basically just emitting a lot of sound. So you could, you know, avoid things like maybe the nester or security rings or something like that. And then I guess the next step would then be how do you kind of scramble any of these video capturing devices? So it kind of has like a double-edged sword, right? You can use it for, for good or to protect yourself from, you know, being having private conversations away from, you know, various in-home listening devices or even your phone. Um I think it's a I think it's a cool idea. I don't think I would personally like put one on because I'm not that worried about what my phone is picking up. Right. Um, and like I've become so re- not necessarily reliant, but I really like where voice technology is going. So I kind of appreciate the fact that in order for it to, to grow as a technology, it's got to listen to things that I say or, you know, interact with me more than maybe more people want to. Um, but I definitely can see the utility of something like this, especially you know, in, in even these kind of hardware companies or software companies themselves where they're kind of fr- surrounded by their own devices and they may be needing to have conversations that, you know, about IP of upcoming technology that they're developing so they don't want that getting out across the internet if you've got, you know, problems with hackers inside of your own building or something because I know, I know, although Google's like got great security measures, you never know who's trying to leak information out to others or something like that. Uh, sure. So it could have a lot of yeah. utility across different kind of sectors. Um, it does scare. I don't know how you feel about this. It scares me a little bit to think that I might need something like this if I was walking around and wanted to have just like a private conversation. Because with like the the advent of putting more drones in the air or putting more you know listening devices everywhere throughout you know a small metropolitan city and stuff like that. Not that I have anything to hide. It just kind of feels weird to think that people are listening to you all the time. You're on a podcast, Blake. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hate to there's that too. <laughs> um, but so you know, the I, the way I feel about it is, I don't know. I've I feel like I've given up my privacy and security a long time ago. Um, I, I don't know. I hate to say that, but like, it, I think it, we, we all are. have though, and you know, I don't it's think a, a lot of us don't want to admit it. Yeah. Um. And anyway, I do want to get into another point though. This article brings up polite surveillance society, uh, and you know, thinking about these smart devices. Uh, there were researchers in uh, Northeastern University that uh, played 120 hours of TV to find out what woke these smart speakers just by listening to things in the ambient environment. And they found that the machines woke up dozens of times and started recording after hearing phrases similar to the wake words. Um, so that's that's interestingly enough. Uh, but t- thinking about this polite surveillance society, you know, thinking about uh, even... Uh, Rick Osterlow, Google's head of hardware, uh, is is basically recommending when guests come into your home, let them know about the presence of smart speakers, so that way they're like fully informed about, you know, what they say in this environment. And like that's, I don't know, man, that's kind of weird to me too. It's like uh, I guess you should disclose it, but like, man, it's my home, and you're coming into my home, and 
uh, like you see them and I guess like, but is it on us to dis- to kind of distill what it means to have a smart speaker in the room with you? Like, I don't know. I, th- I think it kind of is, right? If you're going to make the choice to have it and maybe it's like somebody like my mom, she has no idea what the implications of some of that stuff is or the fact that the phone is always completely listening to you or could be recording, you know, even if you use the wrong but similar awake words. Um, I think it does end up on the person who owns them to let people know. But I mean, how do you have that conversation? Oh, hi, new friend. I've got a bunch of listening devices in my house and they're not surveillance equipment, but they're, and they're used for good things, but they are listening to you nonetheless. So if you want to make sure that it's okay to come in the house, please sign this affidavit. Yeah. There's, there's also this, I feel like this goes too far, but the welcome mats might become warning mats. They should like, Hey, uh, Recording in progress. Although this takes me back to that uh, article that we talked about a long time ago. I guess it was like last year at some point, but it was the the symbology for recording yeah. in progress, like passive, active, all that stuff. Uh, it was an interesting article. Um, okay, I want to make sure we move on because I love the news stories this week and I want to make sure we have time to talk about all of them. So what do we have up next? All right, up next we got falling asleep at the wheel is a trucker's worst nightmare. Fatigue comes with the job of driving an 18-wheeler even with rules requiring rest stops and limiting driving hours. Now, new technologies are becoming available to alert drowsy drivers sometimes even before they feel tired. Such tech has been slow to enter the big rig's cabs, but maybe that but that may be changing soon. So biometric sensors are getting lighter, cheaper, and more accurate, and so- new software systems can connect driver and vehicle data. The feedback loops these systems create could make the road safer for everyone. So new wearable technology monitors the drivers that are in a more subtle way and comes in a variety of forms, including caps, vests, wristbands, and even eyewear. So the system also includes or also notices and can deliver notifications on coachable behaviors that can be improved like hard braking, deliver, delivers audible routing, weather, and other messages as well. Nick, if you can get me a vest like the one that Marty McFly wears in Back to the Future and it'll talk to me about the weather, I am all in to go and drive a truck. What if it told you you're falling asleep, wake up, so that way you are not going to crash this uh, really heavy, really expensive vehicle into something? I could use it just to tell me not to do that when I'm walking down the street, much less driving an 18-wheeler. All right. Well, this might be the system for you. Um, I think this is neat. So this is combining a bunch of different wearables into a, a, a system. Um, it, it's It's some sort of system that talks to each other to understand the driver's state. And also, uh, you know, can provide feedback in a variety of ways. But the article actually highlights the um, the drowsiness. And, you know, th- there's one interesting fact from this article that I do want to bring up is that, you know, there's these long periods of time where drivers are waiting at warehouses and they don't get paid for that time uh, when their cargo is being loaded or unloaded. They don't get paid for that. So uh, this can often contribute to fatigue when, you know, they're not getting paid. They're just sitting there. Um, and waiting. And so, um, you know, this is, this, this could potentially give incentives to get drivers in and out of loading bays more quickly. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll see pay for that waiting time somewhere down the line, but, um, you know, this is just how industry operations might be better optimized to fit both drivers and businesses. Uh, and I think this is also, you know, if, (laughs) 
if you crash less vehicles because your drivers are less drowsy, then I think that's a good thing. Well, I even, so I love the blend of like, let's take biometric markers and incorporate them into wearables. You know, that's one of my favorite things to even right. talk about. But now yeah, you were the first one to put that in your mouth when uh, it was right. Yeah. I still have that soundbite. Somewhere. I'm sure you do. Uh, but that, <laughs> that concept, now we're going to loop it into like a full system that integrates with your car. Cause I've listened to this uh, guy named Lex Friedman. He's a expert from MIT on, you know, AI and machine learning. And it's been interesting to listen to him talk about like how autonomous vehicles are kind of evolving and like the rate at which they're going to evolve. So I feel like driver or truck drivers still have a lot more time that they'll be able to spend in their trucks before we get these, you know, super full autonomous trucks driving all over the place. But technology will get more comprehensive as we like move in that direction. So adding in this biomarker feedback plus more feedback from kind of like an automated car, but also creating this looping system of trying to help you improve as a driver. So I love this idea of being able to improve, you know, are you braking too hard? Are you like different elements that you can make you make you a better driver, make you perform better at your job just from, you know, it checking out your own biomarkers and then combining that with how you drive. Like maybe when you're, maybe when it's early in the morning, you're really alert and you drive super well. You don't brake very hard. You make turns, you know, lightly, but as the day goes on and you get a little more tired, the car can tell you that you tend to brake really hard or you probably need to take a rest stop or something like that. So I, I think the marriage of the two things and then like that down the road influence of kind of like adding more technology to cars in terms of automation is going to be a really cool combination to watch grow. Yeah, so I the coachable things are interesting to me because those are directly impacting things like uh, efficiency and um, efficiency and uh, I mean basically it comes down to efficiency. But does that efficiency benefit the driver or the company or both? And you know that's that's kind of what they're getting at here, I think is that it's benefiting both. It not only benefits the company from being, um, y you know, spending less time on the road, but it is also getting the driver to spend less time on the road, therefore less drowsy. And, um, you know, cause I think they get paid by the mile. I don't think they get paid by time. And so yeah. if, if a system can, uh, route them in a way that gets them there quicker, then that's even better because then they're, you know, going to not spend as much time on the road. Yeah. And I could imagine like if you're able to route people, you might be able to even like inject these kind of driving behaviors that they're talking about throughout that drive, like saying, you know, you should, I don't know, brake harder during this particular part of the drive or maybe like turn a little steeper or something like that. Something to help again with the optimization of not just like the route, but how you're actually driving the truck and changing like how you're using fuel and things like that. So I, I would be a little concerned that it like favors definitely the business side of things. Uh, yeah. But but since this is really focusing in on also kind of like the biometric markers of drivers themselves and trying to keep them from, you know, having accidents or being too tired while they're driving or making sure they're energized enough from the rest periods they've taken, I think that, that is probably a pretty good balance. Yeah, I uh, overall, I think the story is, is encouraging. Um and I, I would love to see this thing in action. Like, what does this system actually look like with uh, caps, vests, wristbands, and eyewear? You know, like, what does that actually look like in practice 
on these truck drivers. Is it going to be cumbersome? I don't think so. Truck drivers stereotypically wear hats, right? <laughs> yeah. Or it, and um, it's like you wear glasses. Eyewear is pretty yeah. much covered. You know, a watch, that's not something out of the... So I don't think it would be... The The only weird thing to me is probably vests. Like if, if they prefer to drive in a t-shirt or something, it might be a little uncomfortable for them to wear something like that. But most of these things I don't see as uh, out of the realm of of uh, comfort that they might normally experience on, on the road. Yeah, seeing as a lot of it is just general clothing items plus like some accessory stuff that people wear. The interesting part to me is the eyewear. Like I really want to know... like. One probably what that what that's analyzing, and then two what the future of that would be because we've we've gone on like a few times on this podcast talking about Google Glass or Hololens and seeing where that kind of stuff could get integrated here later down the road because I I don't know a, a good few people that I've met over the past month are working on wearables and regular glasses so it's just one of those things where I feel like it's going to be more integrated where you have access to you know data from the world around you directly in your eyewear if you wear glasses. Can I pull on that thread for a second? Because it's interesting that you're thinking about the eyewear looking out. I'm thinking about the eyewear looking in at the at the eyes of the driver uh, to measure alertness. And likely uh, and, it is. And maybe it does both, right? Maybe it does have augmented overlays, but it also has eye tracking on it to make sure that the eyes are looking around to make sure that there's no cars in the blind spots or to make sure that the eye the eyelids aren't drooping to you know that the the driver's tired um so that's interesting yeah i don't know do you have any other closing thoughts on this one before we move on no let's keep going all right well we are going to take a short break and we'll be back to break down the news stories right after this Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right. And uh, before we move on, I just want to thank all of our friends over at Engadget, Gizmodo, and the New York Times for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, you can follow those articles on social media or we post them in our Slack uh, for links to those original articles. Um, Slack is very active. That's where we post them. It's a it's a pipeline, as some might say, that 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 channel gets then funneled into some automation that sends it out through social media. So if you want the source... You find Mateo in our Slack, and he is going to give you all the news stories. We post them in there. Mateo's on it, though, man. He d- <laughs> he is. He posts the best stuff too. Like we can't even get through half the content that he's able to put in there. Like we only we can only do like a select few, or else we'd be doing a four hour show. Yeah, I mean, we could if uh, you know we had enough Patreon subscribers. I guess we could do a four hour show. Then it would be <laughs> yes, be like Human Factors TV. Yeah. Human Factor. Oh gosh, all right. That that's that's ambitious, Blake. That's yeah, ambitious. Yeah, it's a possibility. All right. <laughs> All right. We got two new two more stories coming up and they are both about robotics in 
the medical field. So, Blake, what do we have up next? Uh, up next, we got super microsurgery, of course. So a surgical robot capable of reconnecting vessels with diameters as tiny as 0.3 millimeters has been tested on human patients, and the results are promising. New research published in Nature Communications describes MUSA, or M-U-S-A, the first robotic system designed exclusively for performing reconstructive super microsurgery. Using the system, surgeons are were able to reconnect vessels with with diameters between 0.3 and 0.8 millimeters, which, while not impossible for human surgeons, is a task that requires tremendous skill, dexterity, and patience. Musa was re- was recently tested on a small group of breast cancer patients, all of whom responded positively to the procedure, according to the paper. No serious adverse outcomes were reported, and the quality of life in patients improved, leading the authors to report the feasibility of robot-assisted super microsurgical atomosis in LVA indicating promising results for future uh, for the future of reconstructive supermicrosurgery. That's in quotes, folks. That's yeah. <laughs> so looking ahead, the research would like to test the system on more patients and other surgery and other surgical and medical facilities. Surgeons are very skilled at what they do, but robotics systems like these could give them even more precision while they also potentially increase the number of patients who could benefit from reconstructive super microsurgery. That is the best phrase I've ever read. Reconstructive super microsurgery? No, just super microsurgery. I just think that sounds cool. And this entire article is pretty amazing that you're able to basically take a very tough job, so being a surgeon, and add more skill, dexterity, and potentially life-saving capability for lots of different procedures. This is pretty awesome. Yeah, so this is getting at how automation can help us do our jobs better and not necessarily take our job. Uh, So this is interesting because it is allowing the surgeon to basically get in at these very fine level things. And like they say, the the surgeons can do this. It just requires a lot of dexterity, requires a lot of uh, patience and, um, you know, skill basically, to, to do these things. Um, and so if you don't have to have as much dexterity, as much skill, as much patience, um, you can get through more people quickly, you know? And so, like, if there's a if there's a waiting list for something, like with a very skilled surgeon to do something like this, I don't know what, you know, the, the LVA, I don't know... Um, how how in demand that technique is and when i say lva it's lymphaticovenous anastomosis i it's hard blake i don't i don't envy you for reading the stories every week um and so i don't know how in demand this is but you can think if if it can do something like this what else can it do at that scale and how else can it benefit surgeons if this technique uh this automated technique was adapted for another thing so i i don't know i see this as a tremendous boon to uh the field and i don't see it as they're taking our jobs no, I mean, if anything, they're allowing you to do more in a day. And I mean, we just we spent a good amount of time talking talking about fatigue with the truckers in the last one. I mean, I can imagine if you're having to intensely focus and really pay attention to to how well you're moving your limbs to be able to do these kind of micro surgeries. 
the fatigue mentally is going to be insane and you're probably going to burn out very quickly during a day, which is probably why you have such like strict limitations for surgeons about like how long they can be on call, how many surgeries they can do per day. But this is about going to allow them to, I guess, do more, do it more precisely and be more dexterous while you're doing it. Um, and in front, and I'm not, I'm not a medical practitioner at all, but I'm assuming from like the next couple of lines after LVA, I mean, this is saying that you're manually reconstructing and restoring normal lymphatic flow and arterial circulation. So I can only imagine that that can be applied in a fair amount of different places, really focusing on the arterial circulation. So now you've got like more blood flowing and I don't know, man, this is incredible to see. Yeah, it's all really cool stuff. I would love to know what it's like to operate one of these machines, especially when you're a surgeon who's been maybe performing these kind of operations that are not because the article phrases it exactly as while it's not impossible for human surgeons it's a task that requires lots of skill so it's it's one of those things like have a lot of surgeons performed a lot of these kind of surgeries or is this opening up such a wide possibility that now you can do more things that maybe you've only been able to think about in a theoretical perspective in the medical medical community because of the like scale that it's at right and yeah, I mean, you're... thinking about the accuracy here, even 0.3 to 0.8 millimeters, there are plenty of other things in the body that are that small, right? And so, if you can, if you can mess around with these arteries, uh, and what else can you do? And if this becomes a reliable surgical method that surgeons perform by automation or assisted automation or whatever, uh, you know, that could get their minds going and say, hey, this technology could be applied in this uh, context and maybe even will revolutionize another sort of technique that surgeons perform. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting to see. Uh, I, like, if you can't put it into perspective, um, you know, for us, like, if, if our podcast notes were generated every week, automatically it's not gonna it doesn't mean that we wouldn't podcast it means that we we could spend more time talking on the podcast and provide more content because it's already pre-populated but we make the show notes every week um you know we source the stories we uh look for things in the community so and if all that stuff was done for us then it would be easier for us to do this on a weekly basis where we wouldn't even have to prepare um and so I, I extracting that to surger, surgeons, you know, if they spend less time doing this technique, they can spend more time with the patient, with bedside manner, with making sure that the patient understands what's going on. Uh, and there's this whole trust and automation thing, not only for the surgeon, but for the patient as well, because you have a machine operating on your body in some capacity. And so maybe that doctor's role then shifts from... Uh, you know, performing surgeries to explaining anatomically what's going on with the machine to the patient and encouraging trust in that automated system. So this is all very exciting uh, to think about how the human is involved with this system and how it's going to be introduced into, you know, the, the medical community at large. Yeah, because it is like you are dropping it into basically an ecosystem or a system of systems when you think of a hospital because now you've got, you know, it's not just a surgeon who's got to deal with this kind of stuff. You've got prep nurses that are also in the surgery room that have to be able to, you know, report on what's going on from 
for, from the surgeon, then you've, like you just talked about, you've got to figure out how to communicate with patients in a way that makes them more susceptible to the fact that, oh man, there's a robot that's going to do some of the surgery on me. Um, so there's, there's that whole, you know, line of thinking of how do you create this very integrated system around this new piece of technology that's being brought into the operating room. So it's a very interesting problem to have to solve. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of interesting uh, problems that needed to be solved, why don't we get into the next story? Let's draw some blood with that was, the robot. That was, a, that was a bad segue, but anyway, just do it. <laughs> the only thing worse than getting a needle is getting two or more when the first jab attempt fails. I can speak from experience. That is the worst. So now researchers from Rutgers and Mount Sinai Hospital have developed a robot that can see under your skin and supposedly do the job better than humans. That could one day help reduce problems like infections and thrombosis when attempting to start a lie, an IV line, for example. So it's relatively easy to draw blood from a patient with ease to access, easy to access veins, but much harder for patients without visible or palpable veins, and particularly with emaciated patients. In those cases, staff might have to resort to using ultrasound machines to see where veins are more clearly. The blood sampling robot just skips straight to that step using an built-in ultrasound tech to guide the placement of the needle. The complete system also includes a module to handle samples and a centrifuge-based blood analyzer. The robot is still a prototype, and researchers could potentially improve its success rate, though. It could one day be used in ambulances, beside bedsides, and emergency room procedures like IV catheterization, dialysis, and placing arterial lines. Nick, this is really awesome because I remember a long, long time ago, probably over 15 years ago, when I was taking my grandmother to the hospital a bunch when she was sick. That you kept poking like, her? Trying, yeah, trying to find veins anywhere that would work or that they could see. It was just like it was. They were having to poke her over and over and over, and it was the worst thing to have to like watch her go through, right? So yeah. something like this that kind of skips the skips all the guesswork, yes, the and now you're not having to you know like figure out how to go get an ultrasound machine so you can help you figure this stuff out. It's already now very very easy and simple. I mean, this could change a lot of kind of like bedside interactions with patients for nurses and stuff like that. Yeah, I love this uh, for some of the statistics that this article actually lists out later, you know. So, um, you know, this report that this article is based on, clinicians fail between 27 to 60% of the time, which is kind of startling. range. When you think about it, right? Like, uh, even at your, at your best, right, you're failing 27% of the time, which is still like 60% of success, like... Or seventy percent of success, seventy three. Yeah. So, so that's still like, you know. But, but then you compare that to this, this, uh, this assistant robot uh, that can see the veins, and the. Uh, I, see, I'm unclear if it's the robot actually doing the insertion, but I don't think so. I think it's, um, it guides the placement of the needle, and the actual technician is the one to place the needle in. Yeah, that's uh, the way they make it sound, at least in the blurb. Yeah. So, but with this machine, it can successfully draw blood 97% of the time. So cutting it down to just 3% failure rate, uh, which is really impressive. Um, uh, so it, it, that's just for drawing blood. So 3% failure rate, but then success rate of 87% for that 30, for those 31 participants that were part of this research. 
Um, so 87 is still larger than 60. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of startling to me that, you know, there, there's such a high failure rate and I've definitely seen it. And you can almost talk to anybody, you know, um, and they know someone who's got, got poked in the arm a couple of times because they couldn't find the vein. It's like either giving blood or for, you know, a blood draw, um, for medical purposes, like, you know, I know several people who, oh, they can never find my vein. So it's, it's usually right around here. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they do the whole rubber band and the gripping and all that stuff to get it to show. And it just doesn't. Yeah. Just like having this kind of quick, no nonsense guide to help you get there without having to do a whole lot of guesswork would be awesome to see. Uh, so hopefully the prototype gets uh, gets moved along pretty quickly because I feel like this should, this should be something that would be really great in an ambulance too because that's when you're dealing with a lot of turbulence, oh, right? Like you're yeah. driving around. Sometimes when you pick up people as an EMT, they're not necessarily you know willing to be in the truck with you, so it's like you're having to deal with you know trying to figure out how to be the EMT on top of like being you know the person to try and calm somebody down, and then like. Adding on top of that, the fact that you need to take blood or use needles and stuff like that, this kind of yeah. technology would make that job a little bit simpler in that in those cases, at least. So that kind of goes well with my next point here is that this is if you are to draw blood, it is for a reason, uh, you know, and the 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 sort of least threatening reason is to donate blood. Uh, but in most other cases, you are taking blood for you know checking your uh, blood count for whatever it is you're checking for. Uh, in the most serious of cases, you are basically putting in an IV and you are, you know, trying to pump medicine in through the body. Um, you know, so like in the most serious case, the the reason why the ambulance fits in so well, you're already under a lot of stress for the reason that you're in the ambulance in the first place. Now, if they have to poke you with a needle, um, you know, it, it can be even more stressful if they're missing and just poking you everywhere. And if they just get it right on the first time, then, you know, that at least alleviates a little bit of stress. And I don't know. I, I just I think this is overwhelmingly positive And I, I I hope it comes soon, too. Yeah. I mean, especially, too, for even like bedside stuff that is still it, it's still pretty intense, like having a catheter put in or dealing with dialysis like that stuff is painful in and of itself like what you're having to have done and now like if we if we can reduce the need to you know have to go through the process multiple times it's just such a win in so many so many ways both for the doctor or the nurse and then definitely the patient so this is this is really cool i'm glad we were able to go through so many medical stories this week these are always my fave yeah i uh i kind of wish elise was on the show for these i know that would have been a good one because we would have had some more insights for sure well, hit Elise up. She's on the Slack. So if you if you have questions about these, hit her up. Uh, all right. Well, we have a little bit of time left, and I want to make sure we get time for this. So let's go ahead and get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. It came from the community. It didn't come from Reddit this week. Actually, we do do a sweep of uh all over the internet we we look for things that the community is talking about we look for interesting things we don't just look at reddit it's the easy way out but we look at our email we look at our slack we look at even the human factors and ergonomics society form um and that's where our topic comes from this week um now uh 
the topic this week is what does a practitioner look like? Uh, this is from, like I said, the HFES member form. Um, as a society, HFES is encouraging increased practitioner engagement. The question of what differentiates a practitioner has been questioned. At the highest level, I categorized uh, members into fields of academia, government, and uh, practitioners. There are so many fuzzy areas. What do you think? For example, how do those in healthcare identify? Um, so, actually, I do want to give credit to uh, the person that wrote this on the member forum, and that would be, drumroll please, I'm just looking it up. This is Julie Giplin McKin, McMinn. I'm yeah, sorry I, if I butchered your name, but uh, Julie Julie Giplin McMinn uh, wrote this up on the um, the HFES member forum. I thought this was an interesting question because it's like we call ourselves human factors practitioners. What does that look like? I mean, like, how do you identify? Do you identify as an engineer? Do you feel? Uh, do, do you identify as a, a professor? Do you identify as a government? Um, and so I don't know. I just I felt like this was an interesting thing to bring up. So I'm going to toss it over to Blake. What do you think a, a, a human factors practitioner uh, looks like? Uh, I got a lot of thoughts on this one. I'm yeah, gonna, you do. I'm going to keep the first one to myself. But let's go. So let's go <laughs> down the road for this. Because my my initial thought is, why does it matter? Because, I mean, there's so many branches of human factors as, like, a practitioner or somebody who works in the field of human factors that I, I, don't, really, I don't really see the, the need to draw the distinction. I mean, at the, if, when we're talking about the highest level of how do you split up these type, types of people that work in the human factors realm, I mean, I can see academia for sure and applied. Now, applied can break down into a lot of different fields. To me, that could be where you see like this government branch. Maybe you work in, you know, healthcare or you work in, you know, startup tech or something like that. And it like breaks down from there. But really, at the highest level, if you really want to focus in on what people are doing in the human factors field, I think there's really two giant tracks you can jump into. And that's like, furthering the 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 methodology the psychology that bolsters the field and so that's more of the academic track which also has like potentials for applied research or like applied work depending on you know the the institution you work for but then there's just like the application of things that you learned as a human factor student so what method you're applying are you doing usability tests how are you trying to you know basically impact technology or you know system design whatever you want to define that as uh, across whatever field you work in um, and I I don't know Nick like from your perspective what benefit does this have to really break these into these subcategories to help you I guess identify yourself okay so breaking it into subcategories makes sense for me because if you think about human factors and ergonomics um, I think a lot falls in that and uh, this is actually a preview of my topic I think we're trying to be everything, and I, I think that's what the field of human factors and ergonomics is. It's not necessarily tailored to one thing. It's not aviation. It's not government. It's not um, X, Y, and Z. It's a field onto its own that is based on psychology, but it can be applied in any domain. You can always make things easier for someone to do something or to 
map something to somebody's cognitive workflow or to make a device or a physical product map closer to a body, right? And so I think it's 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 all about well how how do we differentiate ourselves? Um, and so for me, I think really what the heart of this question is asking is how do we classify ourselves? And, um, you know, how do we basically communicate amongst ourselves with uh, how do we how do we communicate amongst ourselves what we do? Right. Because I could tell you I'm a human factors practitioner. I could tell you I work in government. I could tell you I work in UX. I could tell you um, X, Y and Z. Uh, and I think there needs to be some consensus around um, uh, uh, along what those things mean. And I think that's what this question is getting at. Personally, that's what I think. Um, now, where those lines fall, I think there's a a clearer distinction between human factors and ergonomics. I think there's a less clear distinction between like human factors and user, exper- user experience. I think user experience falls under the umbrella of human factors, but what separates that from user research? You know, is, is it the methodologies that you employ? to get to that ground truth you know is a is an academic effectively a user researcher when it's a an applied topic you know like those are the types of questions that i think we should be asking here um and so it's interesting to me that you know some of the responses on this thread this has been one of the most active threads i've seen on the human factors and ergonomic society member forum uh, so go check it out. I won't repeat all of them here, uh, but some of them kind of echo the things that I'm saying. Um, and some of them echo the things that you're saying too, Blake, is why do we need this? Why does it matter? Um, and just to be clear, like the reason that I'm saying that, and maybe this is me being ignorant, which is totally possible, but I, if you're a human factors practitioner and I meet you, I am so much more interested in listening to you tell me about how you apply human factors and whatever realm you're doing it in that I guess I could care less like what the distinction or how you draw a difference between you and I. I'd rather just, I'd love to sit down and understand how you're kind of changing the whatever field you're in by application of human factors, whether that's research work that you're doing to expand upon theories or create brand new methods or brand new ways to analyze data. Or if that's like some UX researcher that works at Google, it's working on like some subset of moonshot features for the next big thing. Uh, So I guess that's me not really understanding the root of the question, but maybe some of the responses that you're seeing in the actual thread will kind of shed a little light on what other people think. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of really good responses at, at risk of actually reading them out loud. I'm not going to. If you are interested, go check that out. I think it's a really interesting discussion that, um, you know, us as a community, human factors community needs to think about. Uh, and communication's key. And, and you know, it, it does come down to that. Like, um, if I understand where you're coming from, if I understand what your what your background is, I think I can better understand the types of questions. It's it's almost like a human factors for human factors, right? It's it's getting meta here, where we are trying to evaluate what's the best way to communicate our role within the community, so that way the community can better ask us tailored questions for that role, so that way everyone gets the right answers that they're looking for. Yes, we're all in search of the same answers. Oh. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, any closing thoughts on that, Blake? I think that's a good show. 
That's a good show. That's it for today, everyone. Let us know what you think of our stories this week. You can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us on any of our social media channels at H Factors Podcast. If you want to write in, you can do it at show at humanfactorscast.com. We read every single thing that comes to our inbox. Even if we don't read it on the show, we do read it. Uh, you know, if you like what you hear, you want to support the show, you can leave us a review on whatever podcast medium of choice you are using. Uh, and please do consider supporting us on Patreon. We do have some good stuff coming up for that. So, uh, you know, please, please give us your money. Uh, you know, and, uh, and of course you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about what it means to be a practitioner? Guys, you can always find me in the Human Factors Cast Slack. I think my handle is at Blake in there. Uh, but across social media and LinkedIn, you can find me at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media and, I guess, at, the, at Nick underscore Rome and, I guess, at the uh, Cal State Long Beach Human Factors and Ergonomics Society Conference. There you uh, go. I'll be there. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, Blake, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.